When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who, when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith, declared, I could not be shaken. Do you have one last deployment in you? This is our last segment on the war chapters, and in some ways, we've saved the best for last, or at least the best known. We now get to spend our time with the 2,000 stripling warriors, the armies of Helaman, and the three main offensives that they were a part of. The rescue of the army of Antipas, the conquest of Antipara, and the defense of Cumani, and the conquest of the city of Manti. But before we get into that, I want to pick up where we left off last time. And that was with this focus on the city of Bountiful, the main POW camp that the Nephites ended up using to guard and hopefully to rehabilitate the soldiers that they took prisoner throughout these Nephite-Lamanite wars. Like I said at the end of the last video, what struck me about Bountiful being this POW camp is that Bountiful is best known as the place to which Jesus came when he appeared and ministered among the Nephites. And there seems something so fitting about that well, I want to approach the stripling warriors from a similar perspective, seeing what's going on in their present in the war chapters with an eye to what will come in their future. Because if the battles that the stripling warriors participated in took place roughly in the mid-60s BC, and if they were mid-teenagers, as they probably were, then they would have been in their late 70s to see the sign that had been prophesied concerning the birth of Christ. That day, that night, and that day without any darkness. Prophesied by whom? Samuel the Lamanite. Could Samuel have been one of these stripling warriors? Perhaps. He came from this people. And to me, it's fascinating to imagine a bunch of old-timers being threatened by Nephite unbelievers that if the sign doesn't come by some prearranged day, the ultimate ultimatum here, then you'll be slain. And yet, talk about the wrong group of people to threaten with death. Those old men would have stared death in the face in their early youth and been unflinching. So to stand firm in that moment of great alarm, that was something that they'd been doing for decades. I even wonder if a few of them, in the extremes of old age, perhaps were still alive 33 years later when Jesus Christ came among them. I mean, they would have been around 100, so I don't know how likely that would be. But sometimes when we see pictures of the greatest generation, the few surviving World War II veterans that are still alive, then maybe, just maybe, there might have been a few survivors from this Ammonite greatest generation prepared to receive their king. And if they weren't personally present to fall at his feet, they were at least among those who helped raise the generations that were there to welcome the Savior. To me, that seems so fitting, so relevant to our situation. A rising generation being tested to the core as they prepare for the coming of Christ. 
whatever battles you and I face, whatever battles the rising generation has to confront. I hope we see them in the context of this prophetic timeline in the Book of Mormon. Because whether we, right now, are stripling warriors, or the mothers who knew that are raising them, or fathers sending provisions, or leaders gathering forces and leading them into battle, wherever we happen to be in the late Alma of history, 3rd Nephi 11, isn't that far away. So I hope as we study the stripling warriors today, we think a little bit less about them and a little bit more about ourselves. Not in a selfish way, of course, but to see, am I part of the Lord's army? And am I preparing as faithfully and diligently as they did? For that, let's start in Alma chapter 53 and watch this army of stripling warriors first assembled. This all appears in an epistle that Helaman sends to Moroni to apprise him of what's going on within his theater of the war. And in verse 10 and 11 and 12, he reviews some of that Ammonite history, being converted by Ammon and his brethren and so on. In fact, I love the correction that Helaman gives himself in that early introduction. In verse 10, when he says, these were the people of Ammon, who in the beginning were Lamanites. Again, the surprise here, the people that we are spending our days fighting have produced some of our own finest soldiers. But by Ammon and his brethren, and then here's the correction, or rather by the power and word of God. I mean, yeah, I guess Ammon and his brothers helped out a bit, but it was really God's word and power that did the converting. They were converted unto the Lord, brought down to the land of Zarahemla, and ever since have been protected by the Nephites. They've been on the receiving end, but now that's about to shift. He describes the oath that they took in verse 11, and their own courage in the face of death that they would have suffered themselves to fall into the hands of their brethren, the unconverted Lamanites, had it not been for the pity and the exceeding love which Ammon and his brethren had had for them. That's what brought them to the land of Zarahemla in the first place, the pity and exceeding love of those that first shared the gospel with them. Thankfully, the exceeding love that was shown them by their missionaries was matched by the lifelong members that were back home ready to receive them. If we could do that better as a church, we would have no retention problems. If members treated converts the way the missionaries did, with exceeding love, then of course they would be protected within the embrace of the church. And protected not just to receive the blessings of the church, but protected long enough to be able to contribute something life-changing in return, exactly as these Ammonites did. Now in verse 13, the plot thickens. When they saw the danger and the many afflictions and tribulations which the Nephites bore for them, they were moved with compassion and were desirous to take up arms in the defense of their country. Come passion. Come means with. Passion means suffering and feeling. They wanted to suffer with the Nephites because they were feeling with them their afflictions and their tribulations. Even the way it's described there points us to something and someone even higher. To see the affliction and tribulation which someone else bore for them sound like someone you know? For surely he hath borne our sorrows, carried our griefs, suffered our iniquities, battled our demons, borne our cross, taken our spot in the tomb. Does the suffering of Jesus his afflictions and tribulations born for us, do they move us to compassion? That word describes the motivation behind Gethsemane. 
to take upon him all that we would suffer in life so that he might know according to the flesh how to succor us according to our infirmities. But if compassion describes his motivation, does it also describe our reciprocation? That we feel compassion in return? If he felt all of what we feel, can we feel a portion of what he felt? If so, it will make us want to join him in all his work and all his war. In fact, with the same power that it drew these Ammonites into the thought of breaking their covenant, it should draw us into a desire to keep ours. For them, it says in verse 14, they were about to take their weapons of war. But talk about a justifiable reason for breaking one's covenants. Putting them on pause, perhaps, is a better way to describe it. There was nothing selfish about this. This was compassion and condescension. And yet, as far as Helaman saw it, it was still covenant breaking. And so it says in that verse that they were overpowered by the persuasions of Helaman and his brethren, for they were about to break the oath which they had made. I wonder if our words can be meaningful and motivating enough to overpower someone whenever they have a desire to break their covenants. Like Ammon and his brothers who were first part of the initial conversion, giving themselves to much prayer and fasting, searching the scriptures diligently that they might know the word of God and become men of sound understanding, filled with the spirit of prophecy and of revelation, so that when they taught, they taught with power, persuasive power, enough to make them want to make covenants. And now a later generation of missionaries with equal persuasive power to help them keep those covenants. He reminds me of that beautiful verse in section 11 of the Doctrine and Covenants when Hiram Smith is told by the Lord that if you seek to obtain my word and then seek to declare it, then your tongue will be loosed. And if you desire, interesting if, you shall have my spirit and my word, yea, the power of God unto the convincing of men. That's persuasive power. God's spirit and his word. That's the sword in the armor of God. Those Ammonites refused to take up swords, having buried theirs long before. But boy, did they respond well to the spiritual sword that Helaman and his brethren wielded in their behalf. Verse 15, why so persuasive? Because Helaman feared lest by so doing they should lose their souls, even for a good cause but still not considering that breaking this particular covenant was justifiable when there seemed to be other possible ways to assist the Nephite army. As a result, 15 continues, all those who had entered into this covenant were compelled to behold their brethren. They were watching this all around them. To behold them wade through their afflictions in their dangerous circumstances at this time. Well, that's what made it so hard on these Ammonites. And honestly, the solution that appeared perhaps didn't seem much easier because in 16, they had many sons who had not entered into a covenant that they would not take their weapons of war to defend themselves against their enemies. Interesting that their parents didn't force their own personal commitment onto their children. That older generation had been the ones guilty of the many murders against their Nephite brethren. They were the ones who buried their swords because they had used them and stained them with blood previously. But that was a personal commitment, an example of what the Doctrine and Covenants describes as being crowned with commandments, not a few, a tailor-made tenant. 
not an across-the-board command. This applies to me. This is something the Lord asked me to do. Not something I'm going to preach from the pulpit and require everyone else to live up to that specific standard. That's an interesting balance we sometimes have to strike as well. Taking the individualized instruction, the tailor-made commandments, taking them seriously, knowing that they do come from God, but also taking them specifically, knowing they were intended for us. We've got to keep that in balance. Take them seriously, but take them specifically. And don't assume that what God told you is now something that you're supposed to tell everyone else. Leave that to the prophets. Interesting, these parents had that level of restraint. It ended up blessing them, saving them even. These sons had not entered into that same covenant. They hadn't promised they wouldn't take their weapons of war to defend themselves. Therefore, they assembled themselves together at this time, as many as were able to take up arms. And they called themselves Nephites. Interesting progress here. We saw that with Ammaron, right? He was a Nephite, and he claims, no, I'm a Zoramite. And then he says, no, I am a bold Lamanite. Well, among this group, they were Lamanites. Their parents become anti-Nephi-Lehi's. We are now facing the Nephi-Lehi side of the family instead of the Laman-Lemuel side of the family. And now their sons, not even anti-Nephi-Lehi's anymore, full-fledged Nephites in their own mind. And notice what they do in 17. They entered into a covenant. Evidently, they learned from their parents all that they needed to. Not that they needed to make the same covenant as their parents, but they needed to be covenant-making and covenant-keeping people. In fact, I'm amazed at the similarities between their covenants and their parents' covenants. On the one hand, they're totally opposite. I'll never fight versus I am binding myself to fight. But notice the similarities. Verse 17, they entered into a covenant to fight for the liberty of the Nephites. Their parents covenanted to remain free of sin and here their sons are covenanting to fight for freedom from subjection. Yea, to protect the lands unto the laying down of their lives. Their parents had been willing to lay down their lives as well. Self-sacrifice among both generations, whether to perish or to fight. Yea, even they covenanted that they never would give up their liberty, but they would fight in all cases to protect the Nephites and themselves from bondage. You see, their parents feared falling back into the bondage of sin. Their sons are similarly covenanting to keep themselves free from bondage as well. I love the shift you see in verse 19, having made this covenant. Behold, as they never had hitherto been a disadvantage to the Nephites, they became now at this period of time also a great support. They'd never been negative, but they were done being neutral. It's time to be positive, to contribute, to offer something. It's one thing to avoid sins of commission. That describes them up to this point. But to secondly overcome sins of omission, to go from avoiding the negative to contributing the positive, this is moving from the terrestrial to the celestial level of discipleship. No longer simply honorable young men, to borrow the language of section 76. Now fully valiant and not just valiant in the cause of Christ, but valiant for the cause of Christ, a cause which they will now be fully engaged in. As a result of that, 19 ends, they took their weapons of war, and they would that Helaman should be their leader. Interesting. This is not Helaman rallying the troops and trying to gather the forces. 
It's not a leader in search of followers. These are followers in search of a leader. And who do they choose? Not Captain Moroni, not Lehi, not Teancum. All would have been incredible choices, all mighty men of war. But they chose one who was primarily a mighty man of God. It's almost like they were so ignorant of the challenges of war, exactly what it would entail, that they didn't even know they needed to find a military man to lead them into battle. Ah, no, this is never going to be in their minds a merely military operation. This is a spiritual struggle, and we need a spiritual leader to help lead us into the battle. All of those other men were men of God as well, but the hat they typically wore was a helmet. They were chief captains over armies. Helaman was a high priest, but those are the exact qualifications, the spiritual stripes on the insignia that this particular group of soldiers looked to prioritized, fully relied upon. It's not their own military expertise that they're depending upon, for they had none. So no problem at all, Helaman, that you don't have military academy credentials or a bunch of prior deployments on your resume. You're a prophet of God, and that's who we want to follow into battle. By the way, that would take an incredible amount of courage on Helaman's part too. You see a bunch of young, and I mean young men. That's how he describes them in verse 20. They were all young men. I mean, their fathers were still young enough to be tempted to go take up their swords and fight themselves. In chapter 56, when Helaman is describing the battle to Moroni, he keeps bringing up their age. 56.5, these young men. Or 56.10, I did join my 2,000 sons, for they are worthy to be called sons. And this is only about a decade after the conversation that Helaman has with his father in Alma 36 and 37. Suggests he was pretty young back then, so not much older now. Remember, Captain Moroni himself is only 25 when he takes command. So if the chief captains were typically fairly young themselves, I don't know, 20s or 30s, and Helaman looks at these young boys and calls them sons, not just little brothers, not just nephews, sons, there's an age gap here. In 56.30, he calls them my little sons. So even more diminutive there. And then in 56.46, he says one last time, as I had ever called them my sons, for they were all of them very young. I guess I grew up with that great Arnold Freiburg painting of the most ripped stripling warriors you could imagine. I always pictured kind of missionary age, or at least kind of the buffest priests in the quorum but to be sons, little sons, young men, very young. I'm starting to lean more towards the deacon's quorum than the priest's quorum. Reminds me of David and his battle against Goliath. Why didn't he go off to war to face the Philistines initially? Because he wasn't old enough. In fact, according to 1 Samuel, it's hard to tell whether Jesse had seven sons or eight. Either way, David is counted as the youngest. And it was only the oldest three who went off to battle. So if son number four wasn't old enough to join his big brothers, and son number five was even further away, son number six was way too little, which means David? No wonder he hangs out with the sheep all the time. He's probably the same size as most of the flock. We sometimes picture him, you know, talking smack to Goliath. I will feed you to the beasts of the field and the fowls of the air. Well, we got the words right, but definitely not the pitch of the voice. 
I'm going to get you, Goliath. Having young, young man. Same with these stripling warriors. So for them to desire Helaman to be their leader, can you almost hear Helaman gulp in the background? You, uh, you, you want me, really? <laughs> I'm leading the deacons quorum into battle. Talk about going where angels fear to tread. And again, it does describe this little army scaring the Lamanites to death. If I saw 2,000 deacons running after me, yeah, I'd turn tail and run as well. But not just their youth, their inexperience in terms of age. Talk about inexperience in terms of war. How were these kids raised? By pacifist parents. Most little kids kind of sword fighting with sticks in the backyard. Not these kids. All those swords were buried deep in the earth, right? I mean, I could picture them, you know, hitting a little brother or something, and mom and dad saying, hey, look, you know what we do with weapons, right? I'll take that arm and I'll bury that too. You don't hit your brother. These boys were raised to take it and to never give it back. I can picture them getting their weapons for the first time and not even knowing which side of the sword they're supposed to be holding. Or like feeling like, wow, this is a lot less sharp than I thought it would be. And then Helaman said, oh, it, it actually pulls out of the sheath. And then like, oh, oh, wow, okay, okay, I got it. Zero experience in this. But that's not the kind of experience that they're going to need. Spiritual experience, they have plenty of it. And so does their leader, Helaman. In fact, of the 2001, later to be the 2060 and one, it's only that one, Helaman, where we know a name. We talked about this last week with Moroni's servant who scalps Zarahemna and then rallies the troops and convinces most of the enemy to lay down their weapons and surrender. We didn't know his name either. Well, it's amazing to see that among the most famous Nephite army, you cannot name a single soldier. Only their leader, Helaman. Truly the Lord prefers the lowly, the meek, the unlearned and despised. People the world will typically not remember, but who will always be remembered by him. Back in 53 verse 20, when it first mentioned that they were young, if that's the bad news, here's the good news. They were exceedingly valiant for courage. Valiant means strong and vigorous and brave and heroic. Courage comes from the Latin word for heart. Their heart was in this. They were also known for their strength and activity. And again, depending on their age, perhaps what they lacked in strength, they made up for in activity. Boundless energy among the youth, right? But behold, this was not all. It's a good start, but that isn't everything. They were men, young men, that is, who were true at all times in whatsoever thing they were entrusted. That's pretty all-inclusive, isn't it? All times, whatsoever thing. How did they become this? 21. They were men of truth and soberness. That's the word that Alma kept using with each of his sons to be sober, to take things seriously, which is sometimes something hard for youth to do. But they had been taught taught to keep the commandments of God and to walk uprightly before him. Maybe this wouldn't be so scary for Helaman after all. Now their first offensive comes in chapter 56 and they're supposed to just act as decoys so they wouldn't even have to fight at all. Like I said, what you lack in strength you probably make up for in activity. So can you run? Fight or flight? You don't have much experience with fight. How does flight sound to you? 
You never played war as kids, but did you ever play tag? Can you run? And they're ready to run. Lead out the Lamanite army, and then a real fighting force, the men of Antipas, seasoned soldiers, will then follow. And now you have the Lamanite army surrounded. Hopefully they'll just surrender. That's happened in the past. If not, then Antipas can take care of things. You're just the decoy, the bait. I know that can still sound scary, but we're hopeful that the Lamanites will never hook you and reel you in. Now this report, again, comes from an epistle from Helaman to Moroni, a junior officer reporting how things are going in his part of the front to his senior commander. 56 verse 2, he calls him, My dearly beloved brother Moroni, as well in the Lord as in the tribulations of our warfare. Talk about the fellowship of sufferings, like Paul called it. I love you, Moroni. You're my dearly beloved brother. And not just because we're a band of brothers on the battlefield, but because we are both brethren in the Lord. That sounds like Ammon and his brothers and Alma as well. Still brethren in the Lord. I have somewhat to tell you concerning our warfare in this part of the land. So here's his report. He reviews what we just saw in chapter 53, how this little band assembled. A few added details though. Verse 7, When they saw our afflictions and our tribulations for them, we're doing this for you, they were about to break the covenant which they had made and take up their weapons of war in our defense. It's a beautiful balance there. We're suffering for them, so they wanted to fight for us. This is an example of that beautiful hot potato that some people play of, let me do this for you. Oh, no, 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 let me do this for you. Oh, no, no, for you. No, for you. Selfishness usually plays tug of war. Unselfishness plays hot potato. Let me be the one to serve you. Then in verse 8, But I would not suffer them that they should break this covenant which they had made, supposing that God would strengthen us. So that was Helaman's initial thought. It wasn't, well, let's just rally the troops. Let's get your sons involved. That was probably the furthest thing from Helaman's mind. Instead, it was, well, they're honoring God, so God will honor them and us and strengthen us. He'll more than make up for it. Which is true, but their faith was also accompanied by their son's works. And both the faith and the works came in handy here. He then ends verse 8 with this that God would strengthen us insomuch that we should not suffer more because of the fulfilling the oath which they had taken. That's an important principle, that we'll never be worse off for keeping our covenants, that we won't go hungry because we're paying tithing, that we won't be eternally alone because we've kept the law of chastity, that we won't be behind in life because we've put life on hold to go serve a mission, that we don't stand to lose because of consecration. We stand to gain. We won't suffer more because we keep our covenants. I think that's one of the things that keeps us from keeping covenants. We think we stand to lose something. Helaman had faith that that was not the case. The next few verses, Helaman describes a bit more about what's going on in this part of the war. And the action starts to heat up about verse 15. Helaman finds Antipas and his men toiling with their might to fortify the city. And because of all that toil, verse 16, they were depressed in body as well as in spirit. War can take its toll. They had fought valiantly by day and toiled by night to maintain their cities. And thus they had suffered great afflictions of every kind. Doesn't this sound like an older generation? Fighting the good fight all day long, their entire lives. 
And now in the twilight of their life's experience, they are still toiling by night to maintain the spiritual strength that they've developed, to maintain the faith and faithfulness of their families. And all of that can take its toll. It can depress us in body and spirit. We can just be tired. And what role do the youth play in that? Especially since so much of the prior generation's labor was expended on their behalf. Verse 17, those older soldiers were determined to conquer in this place or die. There's no retreat for them. Therefore, you may well suppose that this little force, that's all we were, little in numbers, little in age, and tiny in experience. But this little force which I brought with me, yea, those sons of mine, gave them great hopes and much joy. Compare that to the depression they felt just one verse before. It is amazing what the younger, the rising generation can do to bear up the older generations. I'll raise you if you'll lift me. In Divinity School, I took a class on the history of revivalism. And for my own personal research project throughout that semester, I wanted to see the role of the rising generation in the history of revivals. So often revivals were needed because it seemed that the rising generation was weak in the faith. And their parents and grandparents were praying and hoping that something would spark an interest in faith in them. And when it did, that fire spread from the bottom up. So often, preachers in the 18th and 19th century in America describe revivalism as growing on the backs of the young. And as they caught fire spiritually, that fanned the flames of faith in their fathers and mothers, their grandfathers and grandmothers. I'm so grateful I get to spend my life with the rising generation. They do bring me great hope and much joy. The future is in excellent hands, even if those hands aren't quite as wrinkled as ours happen to be. Now, if the influx of these stripling warriors gave the Nephite armies hopes and joy, it gave fear to the Lamanite armies. So in verse 18, when the Lamanites see that their enemies have received a greater strength, they decide to hold off on attacking this city, which is a good thing. Because verse 19 says, they were favored of the Lord, for had they come upon us in this our weakness, they might have perhaps destroyed our little army, but thus were we preserved. You see, by the end of verse 20, some time had passed. They had prepared their city. They had prepared themselves for defense. I mean, now is the time that they're finally getting a little sword play in, learning which end of the weapon to hold on to and which to aim at their enemy. I think it's important to notice that they use their downtime well. Remember what they said. If the Lamanite army would have come right then, in this our weakness, he says in 19, they would have destroyed us. God gave us time, and we used that time to prepare for the time where we would need the strength that we were developing. It's an incredible blessing that the Lord gives each of us some unaccountable time, early childhood, to learn how to fight the good fight, preseason games, to learn the plays, to figure out how to win this thing. Because once the season starts, everything counts. A real war with real casualties. Now, in spite of all this preparation, they didn't get cocky. In 21, we were not desirous to make an attack upon them in their strongholds. 
throughout the war chapters, we see that defensive battles far outnumber any kind of offensive attacks. And even those are just to regain what had been taken by the Lamanites. So we're not here to attack them. 22, we'll keep an eye on them. We'll send out spies roundabout to watch their movements. We don't want them to pass us by night or by day to make an attack. Because in 23, we know in those cities, we're not sufficiently strong to meet them. We need to buy them some more unaccountable time. We need to extend their period of preparation. In fact, at the end of 23, they kept hoping that they would come and fight us. We're ready for them. But behold, we were disappointed in this, our desire. So we've got to do something to coax them out. And that's when they come up with this plan to decoy them out of their strongholds, using the stripling warriors as their bait. Now in 27, there was brought unto us many provisions from the fathers of those my 2,000 sons. Great detail. I cannot come and fight your battles, son, but I can support you in fighting your own. What kind of provisions are we sending to the rising generation? Some battles will be uniquely theirs. Foes we no longer have to fight, but ones that they are still facing one-on-one. -on -one. We'll talk more about provisions later on, but the stripling warriors are receiving some from their fathers. We always talk about their mothers, and they'll play a, a large role in a moment. But I do love that fathers are involved behind the scenes as well. Maybe even it needed to be the fathers to deliver the provisions because it would have been too hard for mothers to see sons in battle armor out on the front lines, almost like a young Joseph Smith with his leg operation. Mom, go out in the woods as far away as you can so you don't hear my screams. Dad, you can stay here with me. That mother heart is too tender for this. The father heart perhaps is a little tougher. Every child deserves to have both the tenderness and toughness that parents can provide. Well, in verse 29, the Lamanites are seeing that our forces increase daily, that provisions are arriving for our support, and they begin to be more fearful than ever. So they start to sally forth if it were possible to put an end to our receiving provisions and strength. Important detail there too. Does the adversary get afraid to see our preparation. Of course, and so what does he do? He tries to stop us from receiving additional provisions and strength. Knowing that spiritual strength is not static, if I can just stop them from adding, from increasing, from progressing, then by default, they'll start falling back. The strength that was sufficient for yesterday is not for today and certainly won't be for tomorrow. So keep the provisions coming. Their fearfulness in 29 is joined by their uneasiness in 30. And that's kind of exciting to think that our own preparation, the provisions that we provide for ourselves and others, can actually make the adversary uneasy. Remember what Joseph Smith said as he describes the first vision. Why all this persecution he faced from childhood on? Because perhaps I was destined to become a disturber and an annoyer of his kingdom. Talk about great words to describe teenagers. Disturbing and annoying in all the best ways. To disturb the adversary, to annoy him, to make him fearful and uneasy because of how well they are preparing and providing to win this war. Well, in the next few verses, he then describes how this occurs. In 34, the enemy is described as the strongest army, yea, the most numerous that the Lamanites had. 
No wonder 36 says that we did flee before them, and thus we led away the most powerful army of the Lamanites. Yeah, I'd be fleeing too. Now 37 through 40 describes some of the details of what's taking place. We've got to picture this in our minds. We've got the stripling warriors in front, booking it. Behind them are the Lamanite army, biggest, strongest, most powerful, chasing down the stripling warriors as fast as they can. Why? In hopes of beating them before they get caught by those in third position, Antipas and his men. This is like the tiny fish about to get gobbled by the medium-sized fish, about to get gobbled by the large-sized fish. The Lamanites recognize, we're about to get surrounded, so we're going to have to beat one army before the other one can close in. In verse 37, it talks about them pursuing their march in a straight course after us, wanting to kill them before they got killed themselves. That same idea of a straight course is repeated in verse 40. They durst not turn to the right nor to the left, lest they should be surrounded. As a result, notice what Helaman is forced to do. Neither would I turn to the right nor to the left, lest they should overtake me. And we could not stand against them, but be slain. Remember, the shortest distance between two points is a straight line. So if we're being chased and we turn then they can try to head us off, and we've actually shortened the distance between us instead of lengthened it. I love what this does to our mental image of the straight and narrow path. Do you understand why we can't afford to veer off to the left or to the right? Because we're being chased. I think if we pictured that a little more often, we'd have more motivation to stay on the celestial center of the straight and narrow path. Instead of just kind of meandering streams, wandering our way along, occasionally getting off and coming back. No, this is a sprint to the finish. I cannot afford to deviate. There's also a sense of that speed in verse 39. Before the dawn of the morning, behold, the Lamanites were pursuing us. Have you noticed that the adversary seems to be getting up earlier and earlier in our lives? I'm starting to wonder if we need to start teaching seminary in elementary school instead of beginning in ninth grade. What we want to consider our preseason, the adversary keeps creeping earlier and earlier to try to begin open season. So are we getting up earlier as well? Are we up before the dawn of the morning? You don't have to take that literally, though maybe we should, but earlier and earlier in our lives preparing for battle. End of verse 40. Thus we did flee all that day into the wilderness, even until it was dark. I mean, this is life and death. No wonder they're starting early and staying late. 41, when the light of the morning comes the next day, the Lamanites are already up and running, so we better flee as well. But by 42, the chase is over. They don't pursue them anymore. Now why? We're not sure. Back in 38, it talked about Antipas beholding their danger, speeding the march of his army. His thought was, we have to catch the Lamanites before they catch the stripling warriors. Just like the Lamanites' thought was, we have to catch the stripling warriors before Antipas catches us. Well, all of a sudden, nobody's catching the stripling warriors. Are we really that fast, Helaman? Or did something happen? Did Antipas catch up to the Lamanites? Or did the Lamanites think, we may never catch the stripling warriors, but if we stop and they think we're fighting Antipas, maybe they'll come back and we can still beat them before Antipas catches up. This is all unknown to them. 43 says, whether they were overtaken by Antipas, we knew not. He says to his men, we know not, but they have halted for the purpose that we should come against them, that they might catch us in their snare. So what do you want to do? 44, 
What say ye, my sons? Will ye go against them to battle? I think one of the underappreciated gifts of these stripling warriors is that they seem to have no fear of the unknown. There is so much unknown to the youth. They've got their whole lives ahead of them and ignorant of what that life will entail. But to go forward with faith in the face of the unknown, that's courage. Verse 45, my beloved brother Moroni, never had I seen so great courage. Nay, not amongst all the Nephites. Why so much courage? Because they knew what they were up against. We just saw that they were the strongest, most numerous, most powerful army of the Lamanites. Verse 39, Helaman admits we were not sufficiently strong to contend with them. We're no match in either size or strength. Why do you think we're fleeing? Verse 40, we already saw this phrase, we could not stand against them but be slain. So when the stripling warriors agree to turn around and go back into the lion's den, maybe I was wrong to say they didn't know what they were facing. Maybe they did, but courage told them to go forward anyway. They said in 46, Father, to Helaman, Behold, our God is with us. He will not suffer that we should fall. Then let us go forth. We would not slay our brethren if they would let us alone. Therefore, let us go, lest they should overpower the army of Antipas. You see, who were they thinking about? The army of Antipas. We'll put ourselves in harm's way for their sake. And what had Antipas's army been doing back in 38? speeding their march because they beheld the danger that the sons of Helaman were in. What a beautiful parallel that both groups are putting themselves in harm's way for another, thinking of someone else more than they thought of themselves. What else were they not thinking about? They weren't thinking about death in 47. They had never fought. Again, you can hear Helaman gulping in the background, but they did not fear death. They did think more upon the liberty of their fathers than they did upon their lives. Yea, they had been taught by their mothers that if they did not doubt, God would deliver them. And they rehearsed unto me the words of their mothers, saying, We do not doubt our mothers knew it. Oh, to be fortified by the faith of someone else, to be strengthened by someone else's testimony, to believe in another's belief, or to know that they know even as we're struggling or striving to come to know for ourselves. That's trust. A trust that was no doubt well-deserved because mothers give everything to their children. I wish, though, we knew a little bit more about what they rehearsed unto Helaman. They rehearsed the words of their mothers. Was there more? What all had their mothers taught them? Because when their mothers said in some way or another, if you do not doubt, God will deliver you. I wonder how that conversation went in some of those Ammonite homes. Yes, there were still some fathers there, right? They are the ones who had delivered the provisions. But were those fathers or were they stepfathers? Or were some of these boys raised by widows? Because remember what happened to the first generation of anti-Nephi-Lehi's. A thousand slain, a massacre when they buried their weapons and refused to defend themselves. Going out to face the enemy and facing God in hopes that he would deliver them. So I wonder, were there any sons when their mother said, if you do not doubt, God will deliver you? Did any of those sons wonder or even ask, 
Wait, Mom, if I have faith, God will deliver me? Like he delivered Dad? Dad had faith? Dad buried his sword? Dad thought that God would come through and spare them, deliver them? But where's Dad now? He's gone. And I think it's then that Mom would say, God delivered your father, just like he'll deliver you. He delivered him from the one death that is truly scary, the spiritual one. Son, I can't promise that you'll come home to me, but I know you'll come home to God if you believe. If you do not doubt, God will deliver you from the only enemy worth fearing. The grave has no victory. The sting of death is swallowed up in Christ. Believe me. I rely on that promise every time I think about your father. Of course, I would prefer a dual deliverance. But if I only get to pick one, then I pray and I know that God will deliver you in the same way he delivered your father. And maybe he'll deliver you in an additional way as well. I pray for that. I pray for that second deliverance. But I have absolute faith in the first. So go, son. And whether you come home to your mother or go home to your father, all will be well. I know it. And it was then that these boys could say, then I know it too. Remember what they had said to Helaman. They didn't fear death, not because they knew it wouldn't happen. We know that because we've read the rest of the story. But they didn't know that going in, but they didn't fear it. Not because it was impossible in their case, but because it had been overcome by Christ. That's what they knew, and they knew it because their mothers did. Well, in verse 49, by the time they catch back up to the Lamanite army, Antipas had already caught up to them first. A terrible battle had commenced. Verse 50, the army of Antipas was weary. Why? Because of their long march in so short a space of time. And what had prompted that long march in so short a time? We have to catch up to the Lamanites before they catch up to the stripling warriors. Like I said before, they put themselves in harm's way to protect another, just as these stripling warriors were now doing as they returned. They were about to fall into the hands of the Lamanites. They wouldn't have made it had I not returned with my 2,000. By then, 51, Antipas himself had fallen by the sword, other of his leaders as well, because of their weariness, which was occasioned by the speed of their march. Without leaders, Followers don't often know what to do, and so they're about to give way before the Lamanites. The Lamanites now have taken courage. They're pursuing them with great vigor, and all of a sudden, the deacon's quorum arrives. 2,000 young, inexperienced, but highly motivated youth fall upon them, and the whole army of the Lamanites halted and turned upon Helaman. Sometimes it feels that way, that the enemy is combined, as the Doctrine and Covenant says, and it's combined against the youth. What this rising generation is facing seems unprecedented. 
The Lamanites turn to face the stripling warriors. Verse 53, with that, that gives the men of Antipas just enough breathing room that they can come to themselves, gather themselves together again, and come upon the rear of the Lamanites. And thus surrounded, the Lamanites begin to fall until they surrender, delivering up their weapons of war and becoming prisoners of war. Now, 55 and 56, as any commander would fear, Helaman numbered those young men who had fought with him, fearing lest there were many of them slain. How could it be otherwise? They have no experience, and they're fighting the best army of the enemy. Again, this is David and Goliath. What did Saul say to him originally? Thou art a youth, and he has been a man of war since his youth. Exactly what's happening here. But behold, verse 56, to my great joy, and we could add, and to my utter astonishment, there had not one soul of them fallen to the earth. And they had fought as if with the strength of God. No, as if there. They didn't have enough strength on the arm of flesh to fight with. It had to be God's strength. Yea, never were men known to have fought with such miraculous strength. And with such mighty power did they fall upon the Lamanites that they did frighten them. No wonder the Lamanites surrendered, scared to death of the deacon's quorum. I would be too. And thus ends their first campaign.